Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. And on that note, today's show is brought to you by Mubi. Ah, Mubi, a streaming site that I absolutely love. Mubi is aware that right now something really cool just happened, which is the Berlin International Film Festival, the Berlin LA, just ended. So right now, Mubi is going to celebrate the Berlin LA by showing some of the awesome films that have premiered right there in Berlin with all of the cool people really being interested in what is happening in the future of cinema. One of them, by the way, Queen of the Earth. This is a fascinating psychological thriller if you have not seen it. I know that there are a lot of people out there who are like, I love Elizabeth Moss. If you have not seen Queen of Earth, you're going to die. This is like a really awesome, brilliant brilliant psychological thriller. It's just like, it's honestly kind of wicked. And I just, I uh, I, make, I don't want to say anything else about it, but it is a Berlin Alley film. And that means it is right now on Mubi. And if you want to try Mubi for free for 30 days, just go to Mubi.com, M-U-B-I.com slash unspooled. That's M-U-B-I.com slash unspooled for a whole month of great cinema for free. Go be an Elizabeth Moss completist because you're going to be happy you did that. Hello, everybody. You know, I want to say one thing really quick before we start. In order to support this show, in order to support Unspooled, we need the help of some really, really great advertisers. And in order to find great advertisers, not people who you guys think are, like, annoying or, oh, my God, I don't care, we need to learn a little bit more about you. So if y'all don't mind just taking a second, this would super help us out, and going to podsurvey.com slash unspooled, you can take a quick anonymous survey that will really, really help us get to know you a little better. Because sort of the way this works is, like, advertisers want to know the, like, our listeners are cool and smart and awesome, and uh, that helps a lot. So they're not like, oh, give those people, you know, the meat stick ads. I don't know. They, they, people want to buy meat sticks. I have no idea. But anyways, what's in it for you? Well, once you've completed the survey, you can choose to enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply, but $100. That is a fair amount of rental movies. That is a lot of rental movies. You could do the math in your head. So go to podsurvey.com unspooled. That's podsurvey, P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y dot com slash unspooled. U-N-S-P-O-O-L-E-D. And thank you so much for your help. It is wonderful. And now, on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome. 
Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where a Clippers and Lakers fan get together <laughs> to watch one film from the AFI's Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time, the 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say, do they hold up, and how they influence the films that we watch today. Amy, we are back after a month of special 2018 movie reporting. And it was really fun to kind of get into the current slate of films. Um, I think it actually made me appreciate jumping into the film that we're going to be talking about today, The Graduate, even a little bit more because it felt uh, a little bit more elevated in a way. When we're talking about Green Book on the list in 2050, you know, we're going to have a thrilling conversation. It'll be great. And Amy, we did a question on the Unspooled Twitter account. We said, you know, what was your favorite movie of 2018? And I have to say that overwhelmingly – it was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Really interesting that that movie really captured a lot of people, although two films came up on that list that we did not talk about, which was First Man and Vice, Um, both movies that did not make the top blockbuster, did not make the top critical, nor did they make uh, the Listener Call-In Show, but they are movies that are, you know, being discussed right now. Um, I didn't see First Man. Did you see First Man? I did. I saw First Man. It was okay. I saw Apollo 11, which is a documentary about it, that or about about just space in general that's out now-ish, I think. Okay. In IMAX, I would see that over First Man again. But I kind of want to say for like people who saw Free Solo out there, you know, about like Alex Honnold, the, the guy who come, climbed El Capitan, and also um, First Man, I sort of felt like they were almost about the same guy. That like the mm. Neil Armstrong that you see here that Ryan Ar- that Ryan Gosling does yeah. is really similar to the No Fear Alex Honnold. They're both just these guys who can like thrive in extreme situations. They don't seem to have a lot of outward emotion. They're incredibly calm. There seems to be a chip missing in Neil Armstrong's brain the same way that when they run yeah. Alex Honnold through like a brain scan, they're like, oh, you just don't feel fear. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you have to be when you're doing that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously those people find – those challenges, like you know, you wouldn't feel it. Like you wouldn't. Free Solo would not be interesting. The guy's like, oh god, oh god, oh god. Like he would never have gotten to that that point. Um, and Vice, where where did you fall in Vice? I didn't hate Vice. I thought it was really fun. I thought like for Amy Adams being the Lady Macbeth of the modern era, it was whimsical. I did not know that Dick Cheney had a DUI, which is just like the parallels between him and Bush. You always thought of Bush oh, yeah. as like the sane one in the room, but like they were both DUI dudes. I mean, I guess a lot of people get DUIs. Not a big deal. But, like, it's it's so interesting that, like, Bush got nailed to the wall for that, and we never brought it up about Cheney until this movie opens with it. Well, I, I think that what I loved about this film was performances. I mean, across the board, uh, some of my favorite people just really getting into these characters so much so that you forget that they are there. When I think of Vice, I don't think of it as a Christian Bale movie. He's so kind of lost in that character and he plays it so respectfully. I think one of the things I really liked about it too is that Adam McKay, who I'm always all in on, uh, I enjoy what he's trying to do. I enjoy what he tries to say and what he does successfully say, but I just like his brain. Um, was kind of even-handed with the film. Like, it wasn't like uh, a condemnation. It was sort of like, here's the facts of the thing. Like, it was, you know, it wasn't it wasn't trying to make Dick Cheney more evil. It just presented Dick Cheney through pretty much factual accounts. Well, I mean, the banality of his evil was yes. interesting. And I don't know if I'd 
buy it completely when he sort of starts his career and it's like, should I be a Republican or a Democrat? Yeah. You want to be the Democrat? Okay, I'll be a Republican. I'm like, really? You know, there's something interesting about that character. You never quite understand what makes him tick, but maybe that's kind of the narrative world that we're coming from. We expect we need that monologue. We need to understand. And I think that that's what I loved about that scene where they went into uh, Shakespearean language and, you know, uh, and, I, and, and did that scene because they don't know what they said. They don't know what the decisions were. And I think that that was really cool that they didn't um, create something out of thin air. I do want to just give a shout out to Don McManus, who played um, Dick Cheney's lawyer in the film. I loved this performance. He, uh, every time he comes on screen, I was totally uh, caught up in him. I literally, as soon as the film ended, Googled, you know, Cheney lawyer, who is it? And it's uh, and it's Don McManus. Great performance, great role. So just hats off to him. Hats off to Don. Hats off to Don. Now, Amy, we're back into it. We got a movie that is uh, pretty influential coming up. Do you want to just get into it? Let's get into it. The year is 1967. NASA launches the first Lunar Orbiter 3 spacecraft. The first issue of Rolling Stone magazine is released. Thurgood Marshall becomes the first African-American justice on the Supreme Court. The average income is about $7,000, and the average cost of a car is about $2,700. A movie ticket is $1.25, and the movie that we're talking about today is The Graduate came out the same year as In the Heat of the Night. It was rated number seven on AFI's original 1997 list and was ranked 17 on the updated 2007 list. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? The Graduate is based on a novel by a man named Charles Webb. It's the story of a college graduate, an overachiever. He's been going to Williams back east. He's amazing. He's everything. He's like captain of the cross-country team, master debater, Fantastic. Comes home, does not know what he wants to do with his life in the summer of 1967. Rejects an offer to get into plastics, to get into the bed of Mrs. Robinson, his dad's partner's wife. And then ends up falling in love, quotes around love perhaps, uh, with her younger daughter Elaine. And at the end of the movie, he barges into the chapel where Elaine is getting married to someone else. And they run away and they get on a bus. That was the entire movie. Great job. That was... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're welcome. The part of Benjamin Braddock, the kid in the film, is Dustin Hoffman. You got Anne Bancroft as Mrs. Robinson. You got Catherine Ross as Elaine Robinson. And you got Catherine Ross coming into our studio in a bit. Very exciting to have her here today. And this movie is, I mean, one of the iconic films in American cinema. I think the imagery of it is just ingrained in our psyche. If you've never seen the movie, you've definitely seen the poster, the leg, and Dustin Hoffman standing there. And that was a stunt leg, by the way. That was not (laughs) Anne Bancroft's leg. Oh, because I was going to say, we don't have a call to action on this episode, but I was going to say, Paul, my call to action for you is, give me that pose. (laughs) (laughs) Amy, I'm going to take you up on that challenge. Check out... uh, either of our Instagram pages, and you will see Amy and I recreating the iconic uh, graduate pose. Wow, can I make you do this every episode? This is great. I mean, we tried to do it originally. (laughs) It did not work out well. Um, Oh, yeah, Platoon. This movie is fantastic, and I haven't seen it in such a long time. And I think the one thing that I forgot about it is how funny it is. It is a straight-up comedy. I think one of the first times I saw it, It felt more like a drama, but I think my taste has changed or I just am more 
attuned at where the comedy was coming from. It, because it is, from the moment it starts, a comedy. Yeah, the, a lot of things struck me on this rewatch. One, the comedy for sure. And two, the cinematography. And together oh kind of God. combined into this world of like, you know, we talk a lot about like the films are the pivot points in history, taking us from classic Hollywood to modern Hollywood. This feels like the major one to me. This feels like the most modern, older film we've watched right. so far in this whole rewatch, where you really see like the look and the style and like the deadpan comic irony. Yeah. That visual style, even of just like blankness, whiteness. From the very beginning of the film, I mean, what the first clip I even pulled is you have Dustin Hoffman's Benjamin Braddock landing at LAX. And what you have in the background, besides sweet, sweet tunes of Simon and Garfunkel, is just a series of different robotic voices, which well, feels very modern for the 60s. But I'd also argue that he is a part of the machine. I mean, he is on a conveyor belt like his bag is on a conveyor belt. And he's in a world that is all about products you know it's it's about it's about the scuba suit it's about the car it's you know it's about plastics he is in a world where everything including himself is to be commodified in a way yeah and you know when we get to modern times like we'll be talking about how even charlie chaplin was worried about the factorization of humankind but this is where it feels very modern to me in the present since we're not right. really working like a factory industrial yeah. revolution here much in america it's it's the sound of this right here I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in like you have this beautiful acoustic handmade sound and this just robotic repeatingness over and over again in the background. I think that idea of being in the machine but hating the machine is kind of the idea of the film. It's somebody who is rebelling against the system but also embracing the system too. I mean, he's in first class. And I think Mike Nichols was very um, thoughtful in adding that theme throughout the film. You see this struggle and it's never inherently called out. I mean, in many respects, we never get into why he's feeling like this. If this movie was made now, there would be a scene where he would say, I feel like this because, or I am like this because. You talked about the fact that, you know, he was a master debater, all this sort of stuff. That's kind of left unsaid. You know, at one point you hear he got good grades, but we don't really know his personality at school. Was he a nerd? Was he popular? Was he smart? We don't know. We just know that he graduated. Yeah, he's he's really empty. He's empty in a way that I don't always love about the film. Right. But I do think it's interesting that, like, the first human thing you hear anybody say to him is his dad. And his dad says, hey, what's the matter? Right. You know, and that is the driving question of the entire film. What is wrong with you? And he doesn't have an answer. He just says he wants to be alone for a while. It's interesting watching this film this time, because, again, it's been a while since I've seen it. Um, so much is played within the silences. You know, it's about looks. It's about moments. It's about the awkwardness of just being in a room with two people. And I actually was very lucky to do a live reading of this. You what? Uh, yes. Uh, Buck Henry was there. It was amazing. What? Um, Buck Henry, by the way, he wrote most of the comedy into the script, a lot of it. Uh, yes. Well, I mean, there's two credited screenwriters on The Graduate, and basically one of them did not write it. Uh, and Buck Henry was the one who really worked very closely with Mike Nichols on 
you know, everything that you really know about this film. Yeah, basically the first one, this guy, uh, Calder Willingham, he was like, this book sucks. This dude sucks. I don't like this kid. And yeah. he wrote a really mean version of it. Yeah. And Mike Nichols was like, I don't want to make that version. I want to make this version. And the guy's like, nah, not for me. Yeah. So the book's like, all right, all right, all right. I gotcha. And Buck Henry, I think, does a great job with this film. So much so that, I mean, this movie does, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, you know, it captures the imagination of young people like it, it speaks to them like and it's interesting because it doesn't talk down uh i think you know there was a an activism that was going on in our culture when this movie came out and when the mike nichols was test screening the film people are like why isn't he upset about vietnam and you know that was what the test screeners were coming back from from all the colleges but then when it actually came out in the theaters people were really embracing it because i think it talked to a, a general and more relatable ennui that people feel when they have to Stop going to school and becoming an adult. It's it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you cannot overestimate what a huge impact The Graduate had when it came out. Like, there was a moment where they thought The Graduate was going to break every box office record and be the biggest grossing movie of all time. Like, all time. They thought it was going to beat Gone with the Wind because it was on track for just, like, Titanic-level numbers, man. Like, now it's top – it's, like, 22 right. on the list, which is still huge. I think it's around Raiders of the Ark level. It's, like, yeah. still a massive blockbuster hit, which is crazy for a film that looks small in this way. I mean, it's a very tiny film. This is a film that you could see as an independent film today. It's a very – Basic locations, the shot composition. It's a while, Sundance film. I mean, yeah, but the shot composition is utterly beautiful. A lot of long takes, but they're very simple. You know, it's simple in letting the actors play it out, which goes back to the point that I was saying when I was doing this live read. Uh, Sharon Stone played Mrs. Robinson, <gasps> and uh, Jay Baruchel played the part that Dustin Hoffman played. Who were you? I played his dad. Uh, I was the dad, and I played a bunch of other roles throughout. But what I thought was so interesting about doing that live read was how well the script plays just on dialogue. Like, there were no visuals. We're just on stage with scripts reading, and it just hit boom, boom, boom. And it really made me see the power of screenwriting and directing when they work perfectly together because this script is very, very strong by itself. But this film transcends the script because there's so much going on within the silences it's not very cutty it it's almost you know it is it has elements of being like a play like there are these very long scenes where the camera is never cutting you're just moving around and and feeling these characters and i think that that's part of the fun and the tension of the film well what's so interesting about what you're saying is like describing this as sort of a live read is basically how Mike Nichols started his career. You know, with him and Elaine May, they would do these comedy skits where it was often the two of them sitting on a chair yeah. facing an audience, playing out a scene, being here. Here's a clip of them just being awkward teenagers on a date, talking about some of the stuff that you see pop up in The Graduate later. This is from 1959. What do you see here? I mean, you know, like, after high school, what then? Um, what, what, oh, what are your plans? Oh. <clears throat> See, uh, my, my old man uh, wishes me to attend uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Oh. See, uh, uh, they have this uh, extremely fine engineering department. And, uh... uh, uh that's the field I'm going to enter. Um. So, uh, I, I figure if I can get a basketball scholarship, you know... Oh, you can so easily. Well, you're, you're this great basketball player, you I know? I don't know. I'm getting soft. Oh. 
Mm. Oh, are you kidding? No, look at that. Oh, you have an absolutely gorgeous build. Are you joking? Would you care to hit me in the stomach? I love that. And, and that actually has one of my favorite visual bits. It's not in this part. They're kind of smoking and they're hanging out in the backseat of the car and Lane May is smoking and they start kissing and they kiss for a very long time. And at the end, when they break apart from the kiss, she just releases all the smoke that has been like in her lungs for the entire makeup. It's such a funny bit. Which and- is a bit that he literally does in The Graduate. Yes. Where Dustin Hoffman like is so nervous about to you know hook up with Miss Robinson for the first time and he has no sense of timing and he really has no sense of a woman. Yes. So he has no sense of her and what's happening in her whole body. So she inhales a cigarette and he just grabs her and does their first kiss really nervously, like fast, without paying any attention to her at right. all. And they have this awkward kiss and at the end she just exhales that giant plume. Which is so fun. I think that you can see a lot of the elements of Nichols and May throughout all of this. And I think, you know, Mike Nichols is a guy who comes from obviously a comedy background and was really astute at knowing and finding humor and and letting improvisation dictate how things can be kind of wonderfully awkward. I think it's like this movie directed by somebody different could be a very different film. It could be a drama. It it could just be a straight-up drama, but his touch kind of walks you through it. I actually pulled another Nichols and May clip. You did. I did, and this one is about people having an affair. Louise... Where were you? I've been going out of darling, my mind. Don't yell at me, oh, darling, to be doing this terrible thing and to be late on top of it. I'm sorry. No, we mustn't. Please don't oh, yell at me. I feel so awful. Oh, God, what kind of a person must I be to do a thing like this? No. I'm sick. I'm physically sick with guilt. Oh, God. Guilty, I tell you. I know. I, I've never felt just so rotten. I know. I mean, just, just dirty. I know. Just... <laughs> I know. Yeah. All right, all right. Just think how I feel, will you? Will you think how I feel? I, I do, I know. I George know. is my best friend. Your best friend? He's my best friend. He's my husband. Oh. These are themes that he's been playing around with. I think the dynamic between uh, men and women and, you know, Nichols and May, if you've not listened to the Nichols and May, go on Spotify, listen to a best of compilation. It It's great. I mean, they're not always about a male-female dynamic, but... They they definitely mine a lot of interesting relationships. I just realized how close my name is to being an anagram of Nichols and May, but not exactly it. And I'm <laughs> sad. I just wrote a couple more letters to really get the full thing in there. But what's interesting about pulling these old clips and looking at where Mike Nichols came from and his influences with Elaine May, who shows up in this movie really briefly. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't really know that it's her. She doesn't really speak that much. She is the roommate of Elaine at college who comes and walks out of the hallway to give Benjamin a note. All of these things kind of add together to one of the things that I think we're going to spend a lot of time pulling apart in this episode, which is there's this weird tension in The Graduate where it feels like a film that's sort of about something but then sort of about something else and pulling at each other and that you have Mike Nichols bringing his history of making plays and comedies about like young people who don't know what they're doing, but updating it and maybe not quite updating it that much. I mean, there's a whole world of teenage differences that changed from 1959 to 1967. Right. The world changed. Well, and the world is on the precipice of changing more. We talked about the idea of Vietnam and like, and where they shot in Berkeley, you know, that was really the end of that time of Berkeley because then it became this idea of like hate Ashbury and protesting and like that Berkeley changed almost immediately after this film. So it really does capture an interesting 
moment. Again, listening to this commentary track and, and hearing Mike Nichols pick apart the film in different points, he said, I always believe a film should be about something and then something else. And I feel like that what we're talking about is that something else. It's like he's showcasing this one world and it's not a disdain. Like I didn't even realize ultimately like that he that Benjamin Braddock is like this Beverly Hills rich kid. Because like, nothing is implicitly put out there. Yes, when you think about it, he has this beautiful, fancy car. He gets the scuba suit. They, they do have, have a pool. pool. His parents are always well-dressed. Yeah. and His I, parents, I would say, are arguably cooler oh, and yeah. more 1960s than he is. His mom is wearing, like, these graphic print awesome rad dresses. Like, yeah. they throw parties. They have fun. His parents, I would hang out with them over him, honestly. Well, look, that's why they cast me in the part. Um, <laughs> but I think the idea is – it's rejecting this idea of wealth and it's a, and it's like getting out of this, you know, this safety net, you know, it's into so the whole kind of third act or second part of the second act. He's in Berkeley, which I feel like, you know, it, like living below his means. And I, I feel like this is that, like, that's when he kind of comes alive when he's out of his comfort zone. And I, I feel like that's like kind of the underlying thing, the idea of like not being commodified, trying to break free of these chains. But at the same time, you know, it comes to a head when he leaves his car on the road. I mean, here's a kid who's like, I don't want this wealth. I don't want these things. But yet I'll drive that car for the entire movie. But then at a certain point at the very end, that car breaks down and when he goes on foot and then he gets on a bus. I mean, I like that car detail a lot. Like, it's it's weird. Okay, the real Benjamin Braddock, you want to talk about him a little yeah. bit? Charles Webb, who wrote this novel, who said it was autobiographical-ish mm -hmm. at the time. He was a real weirdo. He does basically the same thing. He goes to like... Williams in the East Coast. He's from a rich family here. He comes back and he writes this novel that's basically about himself, about his love for his wife. Um, her name is Eve. And there wasn't like totally her mom was not Mrs. Robinson, but his parents had a hot friend and he sort of debated it and didn't do it and blah, 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 blah. But anyway, what happened to him after he wrote The Graduate, which he did when he was really young, is he got immensely rich and he bought four houses and he just gave them away. They meant nothing to him. He, like, really hated the idea of money. He's one of those just, like, absolute purists. Uh, he and his wife were just fascinating. Like, she wound up changing her name to Fred, not out of any sort of, like, identity question. Right. She did it in solidarity with men who have low self-esteem. And they divorced in protest because they were, like, against the institution of marriage. They thought it was too bourgeois. Wow. At one point, like, they had sons, and their sons would do things like... One of them, like, cooked a copy of The Graduate and ate it with cranberry sauce. Oof. Charles Webb wound up, like, working at a, a nudist bizarre. camp. He worked at a Kmart. Like, he is a weirdo. Well, it's interesting because Benjamin Braddock is a weirdo. And I, and one of the thoughts I had. Is he? And, well, look, my question immediately about this is why is she honing in on him? Like, what is it about him? And I can't quite answer that. I, I understand why she's looking for something outside of her marriage. I get that. But why him? Like, what did he represent to her? Because he's basically silent. Um, seems like, you know, she hasn't kept in touch with him in any way. Like, so what is she seeing that's like, that's what I need to do? Because she arguably is going after him. She pretends that she, it's the bath, like, oh, it's not the bathroom, it's your bedroom. Like, you you feel like she followed him in. She's trying to prey on him. I just never understood why because I'm like, this guy's a weirdo. Like if you saw it, I think you would feel that way, don't you think, or no? Well, yeah. I mean, to be honest, the older I get, the more that seems like the biggest flaw in the film, mm -hmm. if we can be like real about it. Yeah. Because first off, Miss Robinson is hot. 
Can we just say that? She's, she's gorgeous. Gorgeous. She's sexy. She's confident. She's in control. She knows what's happening. Can we also just say one thing as you go on here? Dustin Hoffman, 29 when he makes this movie, and Bancroft, 34. <laughs> so just like to put that in perspective, like, whoa. Exactly. <laughs> All right. And then she could basically have anybody. You know, there's like right. this brief moment where he goes into the hotel and, you know, Kind of just to sort of set up this world that he's living in. There are no young people in Benjamin Braddock's world at all mm-hmm. for basically the first hour of the film. Right. Like he comes home and his party is only his parents' friends. People come over. It's only his parents' friends. We never see him with anyone his own age ever, really, until Elaine shows up. Right. The only people that also exist is you get the tiniest glimpse of the hotel of like some kind of frat blonde guys walking out of the door with their dates. And that's right. it. If I was Mrs. Robinson, those guys look great. You know what I right. mean? Right. No, that's they're what like happy. Think. They're energetic. They're fun because he really, to me, is so rejecting of her that I don't know why she keeps pursuing him. Because in their first interaction, like he says no to having a conversation with her when she comes into his room. He says no to driving her home. He's like reluctant to even get out and open the car door for her. He doesn't want to go to the front door. Then he doesn't want to go to the back of the house. No, he doesn't want to have a drink with her. He doesn't want to hear her personal story. He says no to all of these things. He says no to unzipping her dress. He says no to her bringing her purse upstairs. I mean, he's, he's rejecting horrible. the call to action. I mean, this is it. Yeah. I mean, he's it, not a going on the hero's journey at all. Yeah. She, yeah. That, to me, that seems so fake. The script just wants a predator woman. I well, like it in this one little clip where he says no to bringing the purse upstairs. Could you just hear her annoyance? Well, here's the purse. Could you bring it up? Well, I'll hand it to you. Come to the railing and I'll hand it up. Benjamin, I'm getting pretty tired of all the suspicion. Now, if you won't do me a simple favor, I don't know what. I'm putting it on the top step. For God's sake, Benjamin, will you stop acting this way and bring me the purse? I'm putting it here by the door. Would you bring it in to me? I'd rather not. All right. Put it in Elaine's room where we were. Right. Oh, God. And then she slams the door and you get basically this like psycho style editing of like her belly, her boobs, her belly, her boobs. Oh, my God. It's a horror show. I know. I love that sequence. And you see the tan lines really in an interesting way there. I want to talk about what that reminded me of. And it's such a deep dive. You may not even know what I'm talking about. There's an episode of Who's the Boss where Tony Danza (laughs) walks in on Angela naked in the shower. And that's exactly the same thing. And I realized it it, when I watched it, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's Who's the Boss. And, you know, this whole movie, directors are copying it all over the place. I mean, even from that first shot. I mean, Quentin Tarantino, the opening of Jackie Brown – is, exactly that. Is yeah. exactly that. Wow. And not to mention, of course, like Wayne's World stealing the end, which is where I actually first saw the ending of The Graduate oh, was in wow. Wayne's World. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, you're right. Yeah. But yeah, okay. I just still, though, don't understand any human script reason why Miss Robinson would, would bone this dude who's well, so not interested in her. I'm already on your page, but I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Okay. Um, so when they did the first table read of the script, you know, Mike Nichols said to Anne Bancroft, like, you know, I think, okay, I, I don't really love the way that you're doing it. And she's like, well, why? He's like, it's too nice. You are angry. And he said that was the one note that he gave her. And that one note helped her understand this character. So I think maybe it was right place at right time. Who knows what happened the day before this party? And she's like, you know what? I'm going to fuck this kid. And She's also known him since he was a kid. I know, I know. It's very adore. 
that uh did you see that movie no. door uh-uh. oh my gosh it's Naomi Watts and Robin Wright they basically sun swap it's gross anyway uh but it's a romantic beautiful romantic movie but no it it is her husband's partner's son it's a messy situation well and beyond all of that he's so awkward every step of the way physically with the mm-hmm. idea of like having sex he can't kiss her properly he is he a virgin know- you think I just think that she would know sooner that he would be terrible in bed anyways and why bother? Like, what is she getting out of it? But maybe it's giving her the chance to teach or feel worthy or connect with her youth. I don't know. I I mean, because I understand what you're saying. The idea of, like, these frat guys that are leaving the Taft Hotel, they might be this, you know, image of sexuality that we see. But – that might not be interesting to her because they can leave her. And what she does manage to do with Dustin Hoffman's character is she scares him. You know, I don't know if the frat guys would be scared by her. I don't think the frat guys would feel that they have to be with her. You know, they're both getting something from each other. This relationship exists. And I can see that there is some sort of codependency in this relationship. It does work. Like, Does it, though? I mean, because, like, when we see them together – they're really not talking. Like in that whole montage, it's mostly him watching TV and she walks back and forth and get dressed, gets dressed and leaves without saying goodbye. They right. don't really seem to connect. And like when he tries to make her talk to him, he's kind of like a little bit of a callous troll. He's like, oh, yeah, I used to bone in a Ford. Oh, and he's a little cruel to her. And then at the end, he's like, you know what? Let's not talk after all. Let's not talk at all. Well, I mean, don't you think that like maybe what they're getting is not like the intense – like mental connection, what you look for in a long-lasting relationship because I think that's what he gets with Elaine. I think when he first sees Elaine, you see it on his face. He's like, oh, whoa. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it is what you're saying, the first kind of person his age he sees and he's just like, wow. And then – Yeah, when he says you're the first thing for so long I've liked, it's because she's the only thing his generation that he's yeah. gotten to talk to in the whole movie. But I feel like they connect on a deeper level or we're led to believe that, that their conversations are happening – but he's connecting with her purely on a physical level. And I think we've all had relationships that you're like, I don't know about this person, but it's right for right now. And I feel like, you know, whether or not like that was his transition into being a man or whatever, I don't think Benjamin would be able to treat uh, Elaine so poorly if he didn't have that relationship with Mrs. Robinson, because I think it's almost accessing his Mrs. Robinson-ness to Elaine. Like that's when he puts on the glasses, he's driving fast and he brings her to the strip club. You know, it's like such, it's so out of character for him, but I think it's also what's kind of rubbed off on him from this relationship that he's had with her. Okay. There's like 800 things to talk about. I know. Sorry. Sorry. There is. I I want to talk about everything. I'll just come out and say it. I think this, I think the Mrs. Robinson romance is just really badly done or just, it's just not quite there. It's just a little bit like penthouse fantasy. Okay. You know, and it's interesting. Like, I think that Anne Bancroft is actually really good in in a part that doesn't quite make sense. I think that Mike Nichols enjoys the comedy of the confident woman and the fumbling man so much that I think you lose a little bit of the texture of what this would be like if it was more like, say, Last Picture Show's romance. But I don't think she's seducing him. Like, I don't think it's like Penthouse because Penthouse to me is like – this woman who would be coming on to him in a, in, in a sweet sexual way. And then you would almost focus on the sex. This movie eliminates the sex. The sex is the least important part of it. It's the, it's the bookends around the sexes where it's more interesting. And, and the movie's as awkward about sex as Dustin Hoffman is. Where I, I, I kind of feel like 
she is abusive to him. Like, it's not like, this is not a fantasy. Like, the fantasy is like her, like, from the first moment, she's like taking off her clothes. She's so matter of fact about it. She's not sexually taking off her clothes. She's not doing anything that's like luring him in. You even hear in that tone of that clip, she's like, drop it over here, come over here. She's bossing him around like a dog. Because this character is is angry. This character is upset where she is in life. She sacrificed her chance to be with a person that actually would fuel her. I think that she does a lot with that character. She shows this like very strong depth of character. She's just, but I mean, I think she does the character as written as best as you can. I just think it's a crazy character. You know, I mean, I think the truest moment you get when you really get to see who Mrs. Robinson is, it's that moment when Benjamin goes to the house to pick up Elaine. Right. And you see her in the back of the house, the bar, she's just almost drugged almost. It almost reminds me of Cuckoo's Nest a little bit. She's maybe drunk at the time. She's watching the newlywed game. They're being a little sexist. They're like, oh, I like it when my woman shaves right. and everyone's cheering and this is her life. Like watching this on TV, being drunk as her husband is doing things and her daughter's going to go on and go out without her. And that you see what she would be doing if Benjamin was not around. So I get the, the tragedy of that. I just also think if she was a real person – She'd be making different choices. Well, you know, we're also talking about a time where there may not have been choices to be made. I think the script was written and people thought, oh, who would be perfect for Benjamin? I think it would be Robert Redford. And Mike Nichols directed Robert Redford in Barefoot in the Park on stage. And so they were friends and he was talking to him about this movie. And he's like, you know, this is not your part. And and he's like, why? He's like, because we need to find someone who can strike out with a woman. Have you ever striked out with a woman? And he's like, no, he hasn't. And it's this, that's what I love about Benjamin's character. He's not like the frat guy. He doesn't look like that, but he's he's from wealth. But I think if you put Robert Redford in this role, you would have less questions about it. Like, I think you'd be like, oh, I see why. I think because he seems not schlubby, because he's not schlubby. He's just not dynamic. Like, you know. I get that. I get that. I get that. It just as a thought experiment. Yes. Though, can we reimagine what this would be like if Robert Redford was in the role? Yeah. Because – Well, then you would buy it, right? I would I would think it would actually make for a more interesting movie all around because you would understand his appeal to both women instead of me watching this movie and not getting his appeal to either woman. Mm-hmm. And that would make it more of a pull. It would be more of like a French sexy right. thriller, I guess, or something right. like that. But imagine if this was a movie where you really believed in sort of attraction at all, at any right. level. Because this right. is more like a cerebral study. It almost feels kind of, I don't know, like Blade Runner-ian with like androids talking about what makes a human. Except right. it's like people being like, what makes me love people and have sex right. with them? I don't really know. Cannot compute. Right. I am awkward ass. I mean, he even talks in a robot voice. Listen to this. May I sit down? Of course. Thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you. May I have a drink? A drink, of course. <laughs> I mean... Wow, that's funny to hear it like that. I did not pick up on that when I watched the film at all. <laughs> I mean, I think Dustin Hoffman is miscast. Okay. For a few reasons. A lot of people did too. A lot of people, that was a lot of the people did not want him to be the lead of this movie, including Dustin Hoffman. Because he's like a brown haired kid or because like they talked a lot about how he was like one of the first Jewish leads. Yeah. It's none of that. It's also just that he's, I mean, he was really more like 30 when he made the film. Right. He's playing a 21-year-old from a different generation than him. It's like if I was trying to play, like, a baby millennial or Mm -hmm. something, I wouldn't quite get it. There's something off. I think he is play acting at being a younger generation that he doesn't quite understand. I think that that is 
maybe Mike Nichols nodding to his sketch comedy background in the sense of going, he's playing a character the way that Mike Nichols and Elaine May are nowhere near teenagers, but are effectively playing those teenagers. And he talks a lot about the idea of comedic actors know how to play a character as who they are in the moment, but also commenting on them. And I think that, you know, Dustin Hoffman is able to walk that line. I think he does both, but it does connect. People do respond to him. Let me just say one thing about what you said before. And Maybe it's not true, but have you ever dated anyone or, you know, hooked up with anybody that you knew, like, it was almost self-destructive? That's what I kind of think that she's doing. Didn't I say that I dated a guy with a full back Punisher tattoo? Yes. So that's what I'm saying. Like, but there were choices. But so I, I had choices. more reasons than Man Bancroft does still. And that's a full back Punisher tattoo. <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying. And I, and yes, you're right. There are moments where I'm like, why are they together? And why does Elaine connect to him too? Like we don't get to see all those moments in between. We don't see the sex. We don't see the intense conversations. I think the closest we get between uh, Elaine and Benjamin is that, you know, he basically is like, I think you're amazing. Like right after he brought her to the strip club, but what has transpired? Like he's looked at her, he goes, you are right for me. And now I'm going to make you right for me. She, you know, like everyone's kind of making these very bold you know, snap judgments on each other. I don't know. That's, it's, it's interesting because everyone's kind of doing it. Like even Elaine with being with that fucking, you know, uh, doctor. I like that dude. Swallows up, got a pipe, takes it, takes a girl to the no. zoo. I'd go on a date with him. Why would she, why, why would he ride the King? bus with her? <laughs> um, no. I mean, I think Elaine actually makes a lot of sense, to be honest. Okay. Here's the thing. Whatever is happening with Benjamin Braddock mm. is also happening with Elaine. She's about to graduate, too. She's graduating into the same wild world. Right. She doesn't know what she wants. And, you know, Benjamin is dealing with it by just sort of, like, pouting and swimming and hiding in his bed and having sex with Miss Robinson. Elaine is dealing with it by being like, I guess I should marry somebody? Is that what I'm well, supposed to do? So I totally understand her being like, maybe I'll marry Benjamin. Or maybe I'll marry this blonde dude. I don't really have a lot of options right now because nobody is asking me, what I want to do for my career, they're just saying, like, what are you going to do? And I think, I think like, what I really, really admire about Catherine Ross's performance is you get that across in a movie that never even asks her a question. Hello, everybody. I want to take a moment to talk to you about Fracture. Fracture. Fracture, Fracture, Fracture. I keep saying the name because I think it is so awesome. Here's what Fracture is. Fracture is a way to take your photos that you have right now on your phone, maybe up on Instagram, maybe even just like, oh my God, Instagram stories where you're like, it's beautiful, but it's going to disappear. And if you don't want your photo to disappear, here's a way to take a photo that you love and make it art in your house permanently forever. Because Fracture is a service that takes your photos and it puts them on glass. That means your photo, that thing on your on your phone, it can become art that you can hang on your wall, that you can give to other people, that can take your life and just immortalize it into something beautiful and permanent and long-lasting. Because, my God, the internet could go down and then, like, where would all of our photos be? You know? We'd at least have our fracture. I adore fracture because I take a ton of pictures on my phone. I don't think I'm the best photographer, but you know what? I think I've made a couple of things that actually do qualify as art. Um, and so that means my office right now. It's a little bit cooler because I took some of my photos. I put, made them into fracture prints. I actually gave some photos away. You know, now I can feel like, my friends, you have a little piece of me in your house at all time because they are beautiful and unique and thoughtful gifts for anybody. You can take a picture of your friend and just like say, hey, I love you. And I love you so much I took this hot picture of you and now you have it hanging in your house and you 
are amazing. Fracture is great because they make their stuff right here in America, in Gainesville, Florida. They use materials that are sourced in the U.S. And they are also, get this, a green company, which means that they do nothing to harm the environment at all. They are carbon neutral. That is beautiful. These are the sort of companies I want to be supporting with my money. So if you are interested in supporting Fracture, if you are interested in supporting yourself by taking your art and making it beautiful, long-lasting, louvre-worthy, go to FractureMe.com. That's FractureMe.com slash unspooled, and you can get a discount on your very first Fracture order. That is FractureMe.com slash unspooled. If you pick unspooled in the survey question that they're going to ask you after you check out, that's how you help get your deal. And, uh, whoa, hey, thanks. If you get a Fracture, show me what it is. Tweet me. All right, have a good day. Here, let me put one thought on top of all this, because I couldn't help but think about uh, Last Picture Show and watching this. And the relationship between Sybil Shepard and her mom and Mrs. Robinson and Elaine. And I think there's this interesting similar dynamic there. I mean, why do you think Mrs. Robinson doesn't want Benjamin to date Elaine? Yeah, I mean, let's listen to that because it really makes him angry. Uh, He believes that she doesn't want him to date Elaine because she doesn't think he's good enough for Elaine. I'm not good enough for her to associate with, am I? I'm not good enough to even talk about her, am I? Let's drop it. We're not dropping it. I'm good enough for you, but I'm not good enough to associate with your daughter. That's it, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. You go to hell. You go straight to hell, Mrs. Robinson. Do you think I'm proud of myself? Do you think I'm proud of this? I wouldn't know. Well, I am not. No, sir. I'm not proud that I spend my time with a broken down alcoholic. And if you think I've come here for any reason besides pure boredom, then you're all wrong. Because, Mrs. Robinson, this is the sickest, most perverted thing that ever happened to me. And you do what you want, but I'm getting the hell out. Are you? You're goddamn right I am. That's how you feel about me, that I'm a sick and disgusting person. Now, don't start this. What? Don't start acting hurt. Don't you expect me to be a little hurt? Mrs. Robinson, you lie there and tell me I'm not good enough for your daughter. Did I say that? In so many words. Benjamin, I want to apologize to you. That's the impression you got. Well, two minutes ago you told me I wasn't good enough for your daughter. Now you say you're sorry I got that impression. I didn't mean it. I don't think you'd be right for each other. I would never say you aren't as good a person as she is. You wouldn't? Of course I wouldn't. I I would like to point out a couple of things. Yes. Like, one, her remarkable composure. Mm -hmm. Like, she's very calm. She doesn't get angry in, in like, a flagrant yelling way the way that he does. Right. Which I flag just because we're supposed to buy that later on she decides to, like, lie and say she was raped by him, which Mm -hmm. does not quite seem at all like the woman we see there. Like what they turn her into a monster, I think, at the end just to make him more likable. Well, I think she's trying to keep her daughter away from him and 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 in any way that she can because she knows that she will fall for him. But what is she trying to prevent? Does she, I, mean, I, I mean well she's just trying to have a, a dude not like kiss her and her daughter because that's gross. Okay, you think that that's what the root of it is? I would that would makes the most logical sense to me. Because yeah. I think that there's a part of it too where she kind of wants her daughter to fall into the same trap that she did. Marry the rich guy, not the guy who's dissatisfied. Marry the guy who is satisfied with the wealth and going on because he's an unsafe choice. He's the one that's not going to necessarily provide for because he's unhappy. And I feel like when you see these two people here in this fight, this is a chance for these two people who are so closed off 
they're fighting. Like you would never see Dustin Hoffman have this fight with his parents. You would never see her have this fight with her husband. And I feel like they're claws out with each other because they almost feel safe. It's almost like this weird cocoon of of telling each other who they are. And I don't know. There's something interesting. They're two broken people that are it, – it shares similarities to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I guess. I mean, I don't really see her claws out. Do you know what I mean? She doesn't seem like a woman with claws. She says that he, he's not good enough to date her daughter. She does say that. She finally just says yes, because what is she – I mean, if he's not going to put together the dots alluding. of – If he's not going to put together the dots of, I don't want you boning me and my daughter, that is icky. If he can't put that math together one and one, then she's just going to be like, yes. No, because – And also, he's not good enough for her daughter. But, just, whoa. You see, but you see, like, you know, Mike Nichols – I don't like Benjamin. All right, I'll say yeah, I don't like well, Benjamin. Wow, Amy. Um, I I had a feeling I had a feeling you were not going to like him, but I think that's okay. Um, I don't have to like Benjamin, by the way. That doesn't make the movie bad. It to me, it would in a way set it up to make it more interesting. He's not a he's, movie about a guy who's kind of a fuck up in an interesting way, and I don't have to love him. No, I find him to be, and this is what I was looking at this movie. A lot of directors obviously have copied this idea. Like when I look at this movie, I feel like I see. Uh, P.T. Anderson's punch drunk love in here. I feel like I see elements of Curb Your Enthusiasm in here. I feel like I see elements of Dear Evan Hansen in this. Like it, it is, it is a typical story of a lost person or a person who can't help but kind of fuck over themselves. And their their element, all those things, and 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 many many more. I don't think he's a character that. Like, am I rooting for him at the end? Not in the traditional way. I'm kind of watching the story. I, I think Elaine is the most sympathetic character. She is, she is the character that I probably care about the most. She is um, the character who actually seems to be living in 1967. She's got her cool right. little boots on. She's going to Berkeley. She By actually the way, has friends. Yeah. You know, you know, she actually exists in a world of young people. Like, I don't think that, you know, Benjamin Braddock has heard of the Beatles. Well, you know, here's the interesting thing, too. All of her clothes were her own clothes because the wardrobe department would put her in clothes. And Mike Nichols is like, who is this person? That's not her. Let her wear her own clothes. Uh, I, I, I don't think that either one of them are sympathetic. And, and I think that that's the end of the movie is, yes, he gets the girl, but at what cost? I think the only reason why he wants to get her is because of that scene we just saw where she's like, you're not good enough. And Mike Nichols said this whole yeah, thing. Yeah, it's like a dare, almost like when she yes. gets him to have sex with her by just being like, it's okay that if you're inadequate. Yes. And he's like, what? No, I'm not. I mean, that was when we were going to debate whether or not he's a virgin. She's yeah. like, you're a virgin. It's fine. Yeah, you're right. There's a dare. He only he thrives only in, in negativity, perhaps. Well, he gets – I mean, that's why the movie, I think, resonates so greatly because that last scene – it's a traditional last scene of the movie. He runs. He gets to the you know the wedding uh, late, which is great. You know, which is kind of a great breaking a trope of a film. And then they run away and they get on this bus after fighting off everyone, and they've won. But really, what have they won? Just proving everyone wrong, but not necessarily doing it for the right reasons. And that look on his face is the same look uh, at, at the at the beginning and the end. That that's the move. I mean. That that is the movie. It's a it's a you know it's like at the end of the movie it you don't leave like yes they're together you leave like huh yeah I mean there's like a proto rebellion thing happening and you even see it like in the techniques of it where earlier on he puts on the scuba suit he walks out into the party all these adults are making mouth motions but mm -hmm. he doesn't know what they're saying he by just the way knows a year before Kubrick did two thousand and one he's doing that same kind of. <sighs> 
Yeah, that was very cool. That, that, uh, <laughs> and that Cooper happens to Elaine right at the end. You know, yeah. when Elaine is standing at the altar, she looks up, she sees Benjamin yelling. She looks at her friends, her 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 groom, her parents. They're all yelling, and it's just their lips moving again. You know, they're saying something. She can't hear them. She's in her own world. They're just very distant from her, so she rebels. I mean, that end sequence, it's sort of like, well, we're rebelling against our lives. Like, I don't want this. I don't need this. But not knowing exactly what they want or what they need, like the fight is kind of what they want. And that's what I think is kind of like the most activity in this entire film is in, you know, this end sequence. There's like a fist fight. They have, they have a, a, a camera off sticks at the end. And you're, you're seeing like an anamorphic lens handheld, which is a crazy thing. Like close-ups on faces and people are looking like monsters and you know, you're, you're tight. And it's like, it's sort of like, it's the dream that you have. Like, if I only told this person, and then it's sort of the reality of like, well, now we live in this. What do we do? That, I think, captures exactly this time, this dissatisfaction. But what happens when we do get our way? Well, Nothing, now what? because he yeah. just like, he latched onto Elaine as a solution for a problem that was within him, and he didn't solve. Which is, and, and this is, Mike Nichols talked about this thing about when you fight with people, and and maybe this is a misogynistic comment that he makes, but he says a lot, a lot of the times when you when you're fighting with a woman certain women will will say things that you can never forget it's like an unfair way of fighting it's like you have to understand that you live in this relationship forever so when you say something it, it's unfair because you can never forget that it's said and i do think like hearing him talk about fights like that it's like oh that moment is that is underlining the entire movie. It's like which is just, interesting though, because that like the person who says those lines here is Benjamin, not right. Mrs. Robinson. But she does say she just says yes. He tells her she's ugly, disgusting. I mean, she just says yes. <laughs> uh, but but to the but to the ending. I mean, one thing that's different here in like the mother daughter relationship is like we get scenes between the mother and the daughter yeah. in in uh, Last Picture Show. Here we don't, and it would be fun if they did. I don't think we need that we did. Mm -hmm. What we do have is that moment right at the end where it's the only moment we really get to see, like, the mother and the daughter speak to each other. Right. And Miss Robinson uh, goes, it's too late, meaning that Elaine is already married. To this guy who is basically what she's married to. Yeah. This guy is a philanderer. Like, because we know that the guy she's marrying is, like, he basically just goes. Yeah, he's the makeout king. Uh, everybody's like joking that she's knocked up because they're just assuming right. that she's like been sleeping with him. This is not time. a good guy for her. I get the appeal though, and maybe Miss <laughs> Robinson. You just, just be like dating blonde him. dudes. Sometimes, <laughs> I'm, and uh, blonde dudes, I think, don't get enough love. Okay. Neither do redheads. All so right, I, right, I have right. historically been here for yes. them. Yes, blonde men really are on the outskirts. Blonde white men really not getting a lot of love in society. The phrase is tall, dark, and handsome. I do think people don't give enough okay. love. Okay. 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 Anyways, <laughs> what I'm saying is. Miss Robinson says, it's too late. Elaine goes, not for me. And that is the moment where you know that Elaine knows what is happening in her parents' lives. Right. She knows that her mom is unhappy. That's the only moment mm-hmm. when she says, not for me. Right. And I want to read, actually, this little clip from The New Yorker. This is like an article The New Yorker wrote when yeah. it came out, kind of talking about the audience response in that scene because they t- bring up another film that oh, wait, we were wait. talking about earlier. So this is The New Yorker talking about Benjamin's contemporaries when they mm-hmm. see the film. They say they stomp and hoot and cheer when he plows into the cluster of parents. And when he starts swinging the cross like a battle axe, they go wild. And this is The New Yorker's language, not mine, uh, from the 60s. Sure. 
Hip Negro audiences respond in the same way when Sidney Poitier returns the Southern Patrician's genteel slap in In the Heat of the Night. And they're drawing this relationship even right then between yeah. like the young people and the African-American audience for that film. Or when uh, Jimmy Brown gets to slug a couple of white men, enemy soldiers in the Dirty Dozen, because kids at the graduate can let go because Benjamin kicks hell out of a whole entourage of parents with an unassailable motive. The, those three elements or those three movies that you talked about are all people rebelling against an ingrained thing in society, or at least, let's say, in the heat of the night in The Graduate. I can speak to those two, the most dirty dozen, I think, you know, to a certain extent. It's this thing that is, it's in our society. I wish I could do this. I wish I could do this without a repercussion, you know? And and these characters do it. But I think the cool thing about this movie, and I think where Mike Nichols is very subversive in this movie, is by saying, and now what? And I think the movie doesn't land as good is that they get on that bus and they're like, we did it, we're happy, because it would feel not real. You Although know? what's so funny, though, is like the same piece was noting that when the movie would end, people would start to get up the second they got on the bus, almost like it right. was like you're, the Lakers won, yeah, yeah. and we could just leave while there's 10 seconds left or on the, the clock. Or the Clippers got to the playoffs and okay. everyone's like, yeah, okay, very excited okay, about yeah. it. Yeah. Sorry about that. Well, well, all right, fine. I'm, I'm a loser much, this year much in terms of our schedule. basketball. Yeah, okay. right, really, it's fine. But yeah, they, they didn't really stay and sit and appreciate that last 10 seconds, which to me are my favorite part of the film. Yes. Did you also notice, talking about this man, an unappealing man to you, and I would say, uh, you know, not technically the hero that you would think of, did you notice some similarities to Taxi Driver in this movie? Oh, my God. Yes. 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 I was wondering how much Taxi Driver might have taken from this. Because, I mean, look, he brings Sybil Shepard, again, Sybil Shepard coming up twice in this episode, to, you know, this porn theater in Taxi Driver. And here he brings Elaine to a strip club, essentially. And I think this movie speaks to men and women because I think the ennui is right. And I think what you're saying about Elaine is right. But I do feel like uh, – it's interesting, these men that make these kind of horrible choices. We It is, again, a, a recurring theme throughout these movies. That's true. You know what? Because if The Graduate exists in the world of Taxi Driver, mm -hmm. he would have seen this movie because everybody saw this movie. Right. So maybe it would have been like, that's what this guy did to fuck up a date. Maybe I should not do that. <laughs> I like just the idea of Travis Bickle seeing The Graduate. <laughs> of course he saw The Graduate. <laughs> do you think... I don't know. I don't know if Travis Bickle is going to too many non-porn films. <laughs> uh, but maybe, well, you know but what? maybe. Somebody might have told him he gets like some amazing pasty twirlage. Maybe he went. Can, <laughs> I don't even know the muscles you do to do that, by the um, way. I've always been in awe of that skill. Mike Nichols told a really funny story. That, that um, actress, uh, she was in real life uh, a stripper. And she was paying off her uh, medical school by being a stripper. Oh, so what are you going to say? Her boobs? I was like, I thought oh, they were real. No, and and no, they, I mean, I don't know anything about her boobs being real or not. But Mike Nichols said that, you know, she had to do that all day. They were in a set that they built, and they're doing that scene all day. And she's just, you know, that's a very aggressive, I mean, I don't know because they don't have breasts, but to do that all day would be intense. And, and you know, Mike went up to her and said, you know, are you okay? You know, are you feeling okay? And she's like, oh, yeah, but my feet are killing me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the like the rock gets so much positive attention from being able to flex a peck. I mean, that's <laughs> I mean, like next level. Next that is level. next level. I mean, let's talk about their date though. Let's keep talking about it because he gets what he wants. She wants mm -hmm. to go home. The date is over, and he suddenly changes his mind. Right. She has the one single tear. I love her face in that. Like, I just I think that that's such a great performance from Catherine Ross there. Yeah. And then they run outside. Um, She's crying. He's like, don't cry. And then the only thing he can think of to get her to not cry is he kisses her. 
And then she's fine with it. And then we cut to, I think, the first time we ever actually get to see him acting like a normal person, which is when they're eating burgers. It's which, the very first time he's a human being to anyone. And we don't get to actually hear what they're saying because very quickly into that scene, they put up the top of the car and the music is so loud. And I love that detail. It's like we don't know where they're connecting. And that, and that's and that's the crux of their relationship, I would argue. Like in that moment, you know, it's like you're feeling this connection. And I think the reason why she even responds to the kiss is because, yes, he's driving fast. Yes, he's being a dick, but he's different than probably – she probably went to the same kind of hoi polloi school. I mean, she is. We know she's in Berkeley, you know, and, and not meeting someone who – is like this guy. So she's even attracted to him because he's treating her like Mrs. Robinson treated him, like badly, but it's different and it's exciting. And oh, they're like, we do always end up dating our parents, don't we? I mean, it's it's an interesting God. it's an interesting debate to have because it's they're both being pulled into the vortex of someone who is just breaking the regularity of their lives. Although, look at the people who are surrounding them at the burger place. They're like cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? They've got guitars. They're in like fun, colorful outfits. They're in like fun sweaters. But they're her separate. Date, yeah. Her date is the dweeby dude in a suit. Right. You know what I mean? Her date's the lamest date at the burger place. Right. Well, but, I mean, here they are. They're Beverly Hills rich kids probably like eating in West Hollywood too. You know, it's like they're not – they're like slumming it in that scene, I feel like. Don't you feel like they're slumming it? I mean – Yeah. I mean, I let's be honest. Like he grows up to vote for Reagan, right? There's oh, not even a question. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. well – Okay, I think Benjamin Braddock goes up to vote for Reagan. Well, I think the Benjamin Braddock of the book grows up to, like, have children who eat his own books with cranberry sauce, and he's a nudist, and he gives away houses. Like, that's why I think this character is very different than how he was conceived. Do you think that these two characters go off and live happily ever after? I hope not. I really hope not. I I don't think they are. so much better for Elaine. I think that they actually both go off and are happy because they're making their – they broke free – of the chains that have bound them. I think Benjamin is never happy. I think in two months, Benjamin's like knocking on his parents' door like, can I crash again? Mm. I don't know what to do with myself. Will you fix my car? I mean, right. I, I think Benjamin kind of sucks. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think Benjamin will go into plastics. Um, and if he doesn't go into way, plastics, it's only because he's so lazy. By the way, uh, that was a line that Mike Nichols did not want in the movie. The plastics line. Isn't that amazing? Like Buck Henry was like, let's put it in. And he's like, I just feel like that's so old. I feel like it's just not a not a smart thing. And and they kept it in and it's become like the iconic line of the film. If he went into plastics, he would be one of the people ruining the planet, which makes sense. I get that. I also just think, by the way, if we can like really like talk for a second about how he was on the debate team, like a master debater. Right. That means to me. You're good understanding other people's brains and arguments. Right. You can talk really well when the need be but, arises. He is bad at both of those things. Well, guy. maybe he's like a book smart, but not life smart. You can figure out how to win a debate without having to actually communicate with people. I mean, that's – look, there's so many people like that now. I mean, you look at people writing articles on Medium, looking at people on Twitter. Like, people are so great behind, uh, you know, a structured – thing where they can control a debate is, you know, 30 seconds or 60 seconds and rebuttals and things like that, um, but not in real life. That's right. I was going to say that to be a good debater, you do have to have charisma, which I sort of believe, even right. though I was really on, only on the debate team for a month because I was lazy. But then I think you of all the guys on online who are just like, uh, debate me, AOC. And I'm like, I wouldn't say most of them have charisma. So it is Unspooled's great honor today to have... Catherine Ross, star of The Graduate, here in the studio with us, and also as an extra twist of joy, this is her first ever podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's it's time that I got into the 21st century, so 
So here I am. What I am so knocked out by every time I watch The Graduate about your performance, which is, you know, your character, Elaine, nobody asks her how she's feeling. She doesn't have any, like, giant speeches about her confusion and being young and at the same age and in the 60s wondering what she wants to do with her life. And yet you get all of that across in your performance silently. Like, you say so much about who Elaine is or what's on her mind. And I just would love to compliment you for that, first of all. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think I have to, to credit Mike Nichols. He kind of lets you do whatever you're doing, but the subtle hand of guidance is there. He makes one feel very comfortable with what you're doing. Well, I like that. I mean, I want to start just by talking about one scene in particular, which is when we really first meet Elaine, when Benjamin takes her on a date to the strip club. And I just want to hear what that scene was like from you, what you were thinking about, what you were bringing to the character in that scene, because you barely say a word, but the camera just looks at you. The interesting thing about that is that in the morning, going into makeup, and the girl that was playing the stripper uh, was married to someone that I had met. I had no idea. And here she is playing, <laughs> playing this part. So that was kind of interesting, actually. So it felt more comfortable having her gyrating on top of your head, given that you knew her? Well, I don't know, because I didn't really see what she was doing until I saw the movies. <laughs> really? Really. <laughs> I mean, my back is to her. <laughs> That's true. Wow, what was your reaction when you saw the movie? Well, it's very unsettling to look at oneself. And you do a lot of, uh, oh gosh, why did I do that? sort of thing. But maybe the first time I saw the movie was a, a preview in San Francisco. And my parents that lived in the Bay Area came. And my father uh, said, well, it's better than I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, well, I want to talk a little bit about Mike Nichols himself. You know, his background was in theater, as yours was as well. He also was a famous comedian, improv comedian. Could you see his comedy-ness come out in the style that he directed? Uh, you know, I don't know. There, The scene in which I burst into uh, Benjamin's uh, rooming house room and confront him about what my mother has told me, it was on a stage, and they had these stairs going up, and I think I did 23 takes. And <laughs> Mike said, uh, there's a laugh here. When I came up and I go through my whole spiel, and then you raped her. And I guess I finally got it, but maybe before that, I don't know. Whatever. I did a lot of takes. Did you have to do 23 screams? Because you're screaming in that scene. Yeah, probably. Well, so you don't really have any scenes with Anne Bancroft in the film. No. Did, did you wish that you did? Uh, I mean, it was that's the way it was written. There are two two places where we're even in the same frame. One is when uh, Benjamin comes to take me out. And the other is, uh, I think, when I'm leaving for college and uh, she's in the background and I'm getting in the car. Were you thinking much about what Elaine's relationship was with her mom? Because there's this one moment that I really like in your performance where you're having... You know, it's right when you're running out of the wedding and you know, she screams like, it's too late. And you say, not for me. And I like that moment because in that moment, you kind of get the sense that Elaine is aware of her mother's frustrations. I think probably. 
Probably. I mean, you find out that she got pregnant in the back of a of a car, and uh, and that was Elaine. I don't know. Maybe I just never delved that deeply. That's true. There is kind of so much in the film that's like left up to the viewer's interpretation. It, like the final shot of the bus scene. That's my favorite scene. Yeah. You know, you always learn that when you're working that you you keep in character until the director says cut. But um, he didn't say cut for a long time. So you sort of just go through, oh, my God, let's see. Oh, what have I done? Oh, what now? Or whatever. Well, so um, I heard this rumor that at the time you were shooting the film, your boyfriend at the time, who was not Sam, was hiding behind trees and watching you on the set. I have no idea. Did you do that? I don't <laughs> And maybe, I don't know. I think somebody, there was like a, a Vanity Fair piece about the making of The Graduate. And I, I forget. Was it, it a was. long time ago? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the piece? Yeah, it was. It was. I think it was from 2008. And they were like, Catherine's boyfriend was hiding behind trees on the set. I guess he was a really good hider. I guess. <laughs> but somebody <laughs> saw him, I guess, if, <laughs> if that's true. What about, and this, I understand if this is like a little more awkward to talk about, but Dustin Hoffman has brought up several times, like he's been the one bringing it up, about the moment when he pinched your ass on the set and you told him never, ever do that again. Why do you think he keeps bringing it up? Or what? What? Or was that out of the norm at the time? Because he was fresh and because I didn't know him and we're doing a screen test and we're sitting on the bed waiting for the lighting or something and he was just out of line. And I said something to him. I mean, I admire how much you just shot that down in the moment. Well, I guess that's the way I am. (laughs) (laughs) Did you feel like at the time that you were fated to work with Robert Redford because he had been everybody's first pick for the Benjamin character before they decided to go in a different way with it? And then you work with him again in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid two years later. I had no idea that. I, I mean, I knew they were testing everybody. Men and women for those parts. So, uh, you know. And, you know, I, I had done a, a, a movie prior to Butch Cassidy with Redford, uh, a movie called uh, Tell Them Willie Boy Is Here. Not that we had any scenes together. I think over my dead body, <laughs> I'm in a scene with him. What research did you do for Etta to create this real-life teacher? Well, there isn't an awful lot that was ever written about her. There's one photograph that I know of. So it seemed like it was sort of up for grabs. I found out many years after doing the film that she was possibly the illegitimate daughter of uh, some wealthy man back east. And he used to take her to horse auctions. And she had a good eye for horse flesh. That kind of appealed to me. (laughs) Since I was horsey, I like that. How much do you think being 26 was important to that character? I mean, at that time, was being 26... I think you were sort of an old maid by then. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. I mean, she has this really great speech where she says, you know, I'll mend and I will knit, but I will not watch you die. I think she sort of knows what's coming. What's inevitable. And I think it's so interesting how, like, even just the addition of, like, mending and knitting, it's like she's sort of seeing her role. Well, I think that's kind of 
unless you were a school teacher, that's really kind of what women, not every single woman, but I mean, I mean, that's kind of the um, traditional role of, of women. You got married, you had children, you took care of the house, you took care of everybody, and that was kind of it. I mean, when you phrase it that way, it makes me think that Etta is really the biggest rebel of all of the three of them. Aha. Uh-huh. Maybe true. <laughs> <laughs> I love your smile right now. Oh, thank you. Do you like to watch your films? Uh, there's a certain curiosity, but it's very, it's not very comfortable to watch oneself. Yeah, I've always... Been I like my illusions, <laughs> I guess. What's your favorite, your personal favorite of all your films to date so far? Oh, gosh. Probably the best all-around experience in many ways was The Graduate. And I attribute that to Mike Nichols. He kind of ruined me for several years because he was so good a director. He had a vision, and yet he wasn't a director he made you feel like it was coming from you. I'm going to go, I, I did two screen tests for The Graduate. One I did with Dustin, and the very next day I did another one with Charles Grodin. What was the same was the scene that was written, with, which was kind of a composite of, of the rooming house scene that they kind of put stuff together. It started off, you go in the morning, and you go into makeup, and then you go and you read the scene and you block it out. And we did that in the morning and rehearse it, and then shot in the afternoon. Instead of having it be a carbon copy, Dustin and I are, you know, doing the scene however it's sort of uh, coming out. You know, really kind of letting us do it, or appeared like he was. And the next day, instead of making it the same the same scene, we started again from scratch. So it was a totally different, it was the same scene, but it was a totally different scene. Wow. Which is nice. It wasn't like, okay, I want you to say this line here, and then you move over there, and, the, and you sit down, and blah, blah, blah. Catherine, it has been such an honor having you come into the Unspooled Headquarters to do your first podcast. Oh, too. yes. So I'm totally unspooled now. <laughs> you are a total unspool. Okay. <laughs> thank you so, 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 so much. We're so glad you were here. Well, thank you. Thank you. And here is another cool thing that I want to tell you about. It is Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix. What Stitch Fix is, is they're an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, accessories that fit your body, your budget, in your lifestyle. When you sign up for Stitch Fix, you get paired with your very own personal stylist. And that means you get to talk to them about how you're feeling. Are you a person who wants more skirts? Are you a person who really has to wear like the most comfortable pants? Are you a person who's like, this is how I dress, but you know what? I want you to help me dress a little bit better. I would like to see if I am a slightly different person than how I feel like I have been in the past. I want to up my game just a little bit. I want to try something new. 
because that is how Stitch Fix works. What they do is that personal stylist handpicks five items and they will send them right to your door. You can try them on, and if you love anything, you buy that, and if you don't love anything, you return the rest. You take only what you want and you send back everything you, you, everything you don't need. And they're not really one of those services that's like, here's a subscription, here's just clothes that you get, and you're like, ah, I'm not even asking for it, and you have to worry about like, oh my god, I'm going to send them back, help, what am I doing? Stitch Fix is much more targeted to what you need. You can sign up to receive your scheduled shipments, you can get your fix whenever you want, you're sort of in control of when you want awesome things to arrive at your house. Hopefully, you will find your favorite new piece of clothing. And if you are ready to go on that mission with your personal stylist, here's what you do. You can get started right now. You go to stitchfix.com unspooled, and you'll get an extra 25% off your order when you keep all five items in your box. That is stitchfix.com unspooled. Get started today. Start talking to somebody. Start talking about your fashion. Take who you are seriously in the world. Go forth feeling confident in what you're wearing. Stitchfix.com unspooled. Get started. Have fun. Also, guess what, guys? There is some great stuff happening right now on the podcast, Never Not Funny. Now is so much the time to check it out. If you don't know the show, Never Not Funny is a comedian Jimmy Pardo. He jokes around with his friends. It's funny. It's free-flowing. It is brilliant, and it is built around Jimmy's neck for always finding what is the best way for this conversation to go. He's had guests who I absolutely love. We're talking, like, Darcy Carden. I adore her. She's on the show um, The Good Place. I love that show. She's also in some movies I just saw at Sundance. She's, like, coming up in the world. Alfred Molina, Chris Elliott, and also this week, the person that I am so happy is on Never Not Funny is Stephen Merchant. You know him from The Office, and he just did this movie that I really, really, really like. It's called Fighting With My Family. It's about wrestlers. It's about the real-life wrestler Paige. It's just, my God, it's like the most charming movie ever. Stephen Merchant, also charming. So check him out on Never Not Funny this week. You can get Never Not Funny on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about music. In this movie, because I think that this is a really cool thing that needs to be spoken about. You know, music is dialogue in this movie. I mean, songs are played in full. They're repeated. Um, And the whole way that the Simon and Garfunkel came to be was Mike Nichols was listening to a Simon and Garfunkel album. He's like, I can't get this album out of my head when he's directing the movie. And his roommate at the time was like, oh, because that's your movie. That those songs are your movie, and he put them in, and it really is. It, like, you you watch these montages, and they're very interesting montages that are just, I mean, I think they're Ben's inner monologues, and they're not written by Buck Henry. They weren't written for the, they weren't written for the film, except for uh, Mrs. Robinson, which was originally Mrs. Roosevelt, because they, uh, Simon and Garfunkel wrote a song for the film. Mike Nichols did not like it. He's like, well, what else you got? I'm like, well, I got this thing called Mrs. Roosevelt, and they changed it. And then, you know, Paul Simon basically scored it in that really cool thing at the end where, like, the car is, like, breaking down. He's like, do, 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 do. Like, and he's, like, doing that live thing. But but basically, it's all found music. It's all Simon and Garfunkel music. And it it just fits perfectly. It just, like, drops right in. Yeah, now, now if it was in the modern era, it would be, like, Spider-Verse. He's like, and let me flip up my headphones. Yes. And I'm going to be walking around. I think it does... Do a thing that I don't often see. Like it, it narrates a montage, and I don't. You know, I think the more typical way that you see it is like in the Karate Kid, like you know, where you know, you're training burm, montage. Burm, burm, yeah, burm. Eye of the Tiger, that kind of stuff. But like this is a much more emotional, solitary journey. I mean, and I'm thinking of Scarborough Fair, especially, is like really kind of talking about this love and, and him going through it. Like, 
I don't really see movies that do this. It, it would, it's very uncommon to play a full song and play multiple songs from the same artist. It's, you know. Yeah, because even Garden State was different artists, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's almost hard for me to pull apart because. By the way, Garden State, what? Now I'm looking at that, I'm like, what a crazy homage to The Graduate. I mean, what a crazy. I mean, it's almost comically a crazy. Wow. I'm Are just you realizing. saying that the universal theme is movies about sad guys who want love but don't uh, really know how to deserve it, and then they just get it? I mean, sort of? I, it's funny. <laughs> I, I guess what I, I guess what I realize in watching this movie is I haven't seen it probably in a decade. I mean, going back to my good old fashioned example that I use all the time, Die Hard. Oh, so many people have copied this thing that it ceases to be good. And if you see that for the first time, you're like, oh, the original is so masterfully done and it's sort of i think i'm just realizing now like oh i i love this movie and i i really connected to it in a way like i'm like it just i just love the comedy i love the drama and i'm just like it's so good and so many people have just been ripping it off and i've been i've been eating i've been eating the photocopied copies of it for such a long time and not even realizing it and it is i think i find it to me to be a film that I love most for its directorial technical achievement. I mean... Like, I love the look of this film so much. I find that more exciting than the plot. I know I'm, like, going hard on the plot. I don't regret a second of that. But um, the way this film uses, like, beautiful zooms, yeah. I love it. When you zoom out to see him isolated on a gigantic college campus, oh. he's still a lone man who does not fit in here. And then to cut to it being populated with people, that zoom back from Mrs. Robinson with all the white space of the hallway when she's soaking wet and I think devastatingly yeah. oh. gorgeous... I mean, it's such a beautiful shot. That does a horror movie shot in a way, which is goodbye, Benjamin. It's like, oof, oof. Exactly. I just, I love her. I well, love the camera there. I love the montage that you've been like referring to where you see him sort of alternate between the pool and the bedroom and the pool and the bedroom. And he walks from one scene into another scene and then out of that scene and into another scene. Every, it's gorgeous. I mean, and look, and you're not even realizing how complicated the moves are. Like that scene where the camera's going up the stairs with Norman Fell and Benjamin, like that is a very narrow staircase. The camera's like up on, uh, you know, going up and then turning. It's like... It's amazing. And you talked early on about a movie that bridges the gap between old and new. And I have to say, let's tip our hats to Robert Surtees, who is a cinematographer. Now, where is he from? Well, he only did Ben-Hur, The Last Picture Show, The Sting. Oh, my God. Like, he is I didn't put that together. A Star Holy is shit. Born. Um, Which one? Uh, the 1976 one. <laughs> um, but, like, I mean, you're talking – we're talking about, you know, Last Picture Show. Again, another beautiful film. And – it makes sense. I mean, Ben-Hur, a beautiful film. This guy, uh, you know, really had an eye. And I feel like together with Mike Nichols' ability to let scenes like breathe and do these like long takes, they crafted something that I think complemented each other in such an amazing way. Here's, here, I want to talk to you about this, though, too. Like, I do not want to hate this movie. I do mm-hmm. not hate this movie. I do not hate this movie. I appreciate so much about this movie. I dislike a lot fair enough about this movie too. But one of the lenses I was putting on it while I was watching it again this time is like, what if I let go of the idea that this is a film about the 60s? What if I let go even of the mm-hmm. idea that this is a film about a generation gap in particular? Yeah. What if I watch this as though it was a film about depression? I r- what? wrote that what? down literally. Like, 
<laughs> just like wrote depression. Oh and you underlined it twice. Yes. I was like. I wrote it in all caps. Uh, that's, like, I, that's exactly what I thought this movie. That See, I'm looking at that movie and seeing this movie through that lens. Like that, I didn't look at it from a 60s perspective or anything. That was, okay, yeah. Because I want it to be a 60s movie so much. I really see, do. I didn't, I didn't think that that registered to me at all, the 60s. I it. mean, like Buck Henry would try to write some stuff in about the 60s about war that would get crossed off. Like here's yeah. a speech that got crossed off and I can, I okay. can see why, but I, I wish he could have gotten a little more 60s in it. He had a veteran show up, a kid at a campus, say this to Benjamin. He was like, 50 years ago, my grandfather was in the war killing white guys. 25 years ago, my father was killing white guys and yellow guys. Now I'm going to go over and kill some yellow guys. Isn't that some kind of progress? Which is a very dark thing that got crossed off. But it was him trying at all to bring this into the present, which I just feel like it never quite manages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't look at the movie like it was a 60s film. And I think maybe that helped me enjoy it more. The thing that stuck out to me was the general feeling of malaise that you have. The, you know, what do I do next? What am I supposed to be doing? Who am I supposed to be? Feeling the pressure of making your mark but not knowing where you're passionate and and feeling depressed. And that's why I said the thing earlier on about PTSD. There is something shell-shocked about him. Yes, he may have been this head of the debate team. He may have been great in college when he was safe in that world, but now he's in the real world and he is a cowering he's afraid. He's afraid and and sitting on the bottom of the pool, being alone, being, you know, in that shot like you see him so much alone, driving alone, just driving back and forth, you know, it's like he just needs something in his life to motivate him, and, and it becomes kind of proving Mrs. Robinson wrong. Yeah, I mean, we didn't totally have the virginity debate, but yeah. Williams was an all-boys school when he went, so there's a world where he didn't go on any dates. Right, okay. Uh, I Interesting. Could, I could buy that. I mean, it's interesting. Like, I'm trying to imagine this character existing today and being like, I'm a rich kid with malaise. I come from privilege, and I am sad, and everybody being like, shut up. Right. And I think that's also a little unf- – I think everybody has a right to malaise. Act- absolutely. But I think his malaise is very out of fashion, which is not his fault. I'm well, just, I'm just I mean, making would, a comment. But, but, I'm, I'm not judging his no, malaise. No, but, I'm making a comment on his but malaise. But isn't that millennials right now? Isn't that the argument for millennials is that, you know, we are living with our parents. We don't know what to do. We're not getting the jobs that we were promised. We're not – like it to me seems like the most universal thing. It never goes out of style. And his the, parents are definitely helicopter parents. Yeah, it's just like it, – I mean, yes. I mean, making him come out in that scuba suit and making him perform for their friends. Like I don't get the rich of it. I get the sense of – what now? I did all the things that I'm supposed to do, and now I'm an adult, and I don't feel anything. I don't know. Like, and that to me feels like the strongest thing in the entire movie. But it's funny how this movie launches Dustin Hoffman. He's nominated for Best Actor, doesn't win it, but this is a, an amazing year for Best Actor nominees. You have Rod Steiger from In the Heat of the Night, who does win, Warren Beatty from Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, Dustin Hoffman from The Graduate, Paul Newman from Cool Hand Luke, and Spencer Tracy from Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Like, what a year for movies, and all of them saying a lot. I mean, you know, I mean, Bonnie... I mean, Rami Malek could have taken it, though. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, if you look at this, you know, if you look at the the makeup here, it's like, In the Heat of the Night, Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, Cool Hand Luke, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. These are all movies about rebellion against the status quo in in many different ways. You know, I mean, Cool Hand Luke probably being the most selfish of them all, but they all are about people trying to buck the system. And I think that's interesting that that was going on in that year. And 
you know, uh, Catherine Hepburn won for Best Actress beating Anne Bancroft. And Catherine Ross also lost, losing to Estelle Parsons, who he loved as Blanche Barrow and oh, Bonnie and Clyde. Loved Estelle Parsons. I love how these are all sort of coming together. Yeah. This is maybe the first year that we really just keep coming back to and coming back to and coming back to. Yeah, 1967, you know, I know we've talked a lot about, like, what's the best year for film? And you and I have debated that a little bit. But 1967 really is an interesting, interesting year. Yeah, it's a strong argument for movies that spun Hollywood on its axis a bit, start to yeah. change the, the direction, which is always what I find more valuable. Even if I don't love a film completely, I see its value in being that cog. All right, so obviously we've hit this movie from all different sides. It movie was a giant hit in a way that no one could have predicted because no one was really in it. It wasn't like a film where you're like, I have to go see the new Dustin Hoffman film. I have to go see the new Mike Nichols film. Maybe that, but I, I don't think that was like filling the theaters. But it it just comes out and it connects with an audience in a major way. Yeah, I mean, part of that was a theory like kids were going to like give the finger to their parents and parents were going to be like, what's wrong with our kids? And, and I mean, I, as the dad, actually, I wanted to ask you this. As somebody who really channeled Mr. Brodick. Yeah. What do you feel about his point of view on everything? Do you think he's really that bad of a guy? I think he's okay. Oh, I think that the dad is great. Uh, you know, I think he's just a dad. Like he's – I don't think of him as evil. I don't – like, and that's the thing I like about these characters. Even when you meet Mr. Robinson, he's not – overtly a bad guy. He is a, a, someone of the society. Like, I think that he's probably a little bit worse than Benjamin's dad, but they're just, you know, they're playing golf, they're drinking, they're just talking. It's the worst you can say about Benjamin's dad is that at a certain point after he'd been kind of like loafing around for a whole summer, he's like, all right, let's go. Let's, let's do yeah, something now. I'm on his side. Yeah, I mean, I, I am too. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think that he cares about his son when his son tells him that he's getting married. He's so happy for him. They're supportive parents. Yeah. Well, and honestly, when Mr. Robinson shows up in Berkeley and he says to Benjamin, I think you are filth. I think you are scum. From his POV, this dude boned his wife and is now trying to bone his daughter. Yeah. I would say the same thing. Yeah. Anyway, you know what? This is what Mike Nichols might say to all my quibbles. He actually is quoted on saying this. Again, this is his language, not mine. I apologize if anybody's irritated. Critics are like eunuchs watching a gangbang. They must truly be ignored. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, Mike Nichols really has a nice turn of phrase there. <laughs> How do you feel about that, Amy? Um, well, it's, I guess in short, it's saying those who can't do judge, but I never wanted to do. So what do you do? <laughs> uh, but that said, critics liked this film. Mm -hmm. Some critics loved this film. Some critics gave it sort of the like. Golf clap, a little bit above golf clap. Rarely did people dislike it. One of the people who did like dislike it, a name we've heard here many times, Richard Schickel of Life. Oh, interesting. Richard Schickel of Life actually accused the other critics who said they liked The Graduate of being fake. Oh. Yeah. Here's what he said. I am beginning to think that the most pernicious phrase of our age is that well-known battle cry, never trust anyone over 30. Personally, I couldn't care less if the little chaps don't trust me because I don't trust them either. But I notice a growing tendency among my fellow FUDs, especially artists and the intellectuals, to try to ingratiate themselves with their adolescent critics by agreeing with them. And that disturbs me. Which to me is sort of like critics to nowadays being yeah. like, I love this superhero movie. It's great because they don't want to get yelled at. Anyway, 
There's something undignified, not to say masochistic, about one's deciding not to trust his own generation. In effect, he is declaring that he does not trust himself. And I submit that the quality that best characterizes our time is not the revolt of youth, but the supine acquiescence of so many elders in that revolt. Mm. The occasion for these geriatric musings is The Graduate, a film which starts out to satirize the alienated spirit of modern youth, does so with uncommon brilliance for its first half, but ends out selling out to the very spirit its creators intended to make fun of. The film attempts to force our acknowledgement of Ben's final superiority over his environment and his elders, and that nothing in his talk or action seems to substantiate his right to criticize, withdrawal, or revolt from the society which he has yet to take a man's place. It is a shame, says Schickel. They are halfway to something wonderful when they skidded on a patch of greasy kid stuff. Yeah, like he really just thought it decided to get rousing instead of continuing to explore, which I get. All of those like people we were talking about earlier, the kids like standing up and screaming and hooting and hollering and leaving before the bus scene. I think that's what he was talking about. He was kind of irritated by that. You know, I wonder where his what where his age is in talking about this movie, too. Is he looking at it as an older person or is he looking at a younger person? Well, it's funny you ask that. Ooh, I like because that. Because I pulled a second review. What? Done, done, for people who weren't tired of my stilted review delivery. You're uh, going to get another one. And this one is heading to write that exact question you just okay. asked. Because this is a Roger Ebert review, but this is Roger Ebert re-reviewing it 30 okay. years later. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, he liked it, then he grew up, and then he changed his mind. Oh, wow. He wrote a three-star review of it again in 1997, but he went hard on the film. What did he say? Oh, I'm really interested in this. Yeah, he said this. Here's how he opens. Well, here is to you, Mrs. Robinson. You have survived your defeat at the hands of that insufferable creep, Benjamin, and emerged as the most sympathetic and intelligent character in The Graduate. How could I have ever thought otherwise? What murky generational politics were distorting my view the first time I saw this film? Great movies remain themselves over the generations. They retain a serene sense of their own identity. Lesser movies are captives of their time. They get dated, and they lose their original focus and power. And The Graduate, I can see clearly now, is a lesser movie. Interesting. He says, it comes out at a specific time in the late 60s when parents stood for stodgy middle-class values, and the kids were joyous rebels at the cutting edge of the sexual and political revolutions. And that he, his love of Benjamin is sort of swept up in that feeling. Just this basic idea of adults bad, kids good. But now that he watches it, he says that the only character in the movie who is alive, who can see through situations and understand emotives and dare to seek her own happiness, is Mrs. Robinson. In that scene today, The Graduate is a movie about a young man of limited interest who gets a chance to sleep with the ranking babe in his neighborhood and throws it away in order to marry her dorky daughter. Well, he goes really hard on Elaine. I mean, is she a ranking babe in his neighborhood? I mean, I, I don't get that. I mean, all right, but go ahead. Yes, I'm sorry. And then he goes like really hard on Elaine, and I don't agree on any of this. He says that she's dumb and not deep, and that like she believes everything that Benjamin says, which I think she questions him all the way. I think she calls him on his bullshit constantly. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, he says, today looking at The Graduate, I see Benjamin not as an admirable rebel, but as a self-centered creep whose put-downs of adults are tiresome. Is The Graduate a bad movie? Not at all. It is a good topical movie whose time has passed, leaving it stranded in an earlier age. To know that the movie once spoke strongly to a generation is to understand how deep that generation gap ran during that extraordinary time in the late 60s. Mm. There were true rebels in the movies of that period, like Easy Rider, but Benjamin Braddock was not one of them. I wonder how long it took him to get into plastics. And I normally agree with Roger Ebert. I don't know if I totally agree with him right now. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Well, Amy. All right. And Amy, before we go, is there a Simpsons? I mean, I can only imagine there's probably multiple Simpsons. There is. And the Simpsons that I pulled is from an episode called Lisa's Substitute, where Lisa falls in love with her substitute teacher, played 
by Dustin Hoffman. And oh, here she is amazing. spying on her classroom as she watches her crush talk to Mrs. Crabapple. Since Mr. Crabapple moved into his little love nest. This profession can put a lot of strain on a marriage. Since he's been gone, I've been looking for a substitute to teach me a lesson I sorely need. Mrs. Crabapple, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm sorry, Mrs. Krabappel. You're very nice, but it's the children I love. I gotta say, it seems like he said that line under duress. <laughs> it did not seem like, especially watching the movie recently, that it had any of the vim and verve of the way he did it originally. I feel like he was like, okay, here we go. Okay, well, but there was a movie sequel to The Graduate anyway. Well, sort of a movie sequel. Let's talk about a little movie called Rumor Has It. I never saw it, but people say it's pretty good, right? No, people hated this movie. Okay. Uh, But what it's about is basically Jennifer Aniston is about to get married. She realizes that her family is the real-life inspiration of The Graduate. Okay. We can hear a little bit of this in the trailer. Basically, the Dustin Hoffman figure is Kevin Costner. And this is her, him, this is the trailer. Just listen to this. Just just listen to this trailer. Grandma. I told you never to call me that in public. Did mom sleep with someone before marrying dad? Bo Burrows. Who? Mom like Bo Burrows. You seduced him, and then she ran off with him a week before the wedding. Isn't that what happened? I don't believe everything you see in the movies. Get me a copy of The Graduate. It's my family, Jeff. We are the Robinsons. Why has no one ever told me about this? Most of all, you have to hide it from the kids, cuckoo. You're Mrs. Robinson. Huh. Oh my God, it's him. Who him? Him, him. Son of a... Oh, jeez. So you want to know what happened between your mother and me? And you and my grandmother. Oh. Wow. I know. Wow. Wow. I know. How do people just know what they want? I have never known what I wanted. I can't believe I just did that. So inappropriate. I didn't... I mean, I really... What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I slept with my mother no. and my grandmother. Maybe every girl in my family has to sleep with you. Stop it, well, Amy. I don't Stop know it. They have to, but they certainly have. I'm the most screwed up person in the world. Well, did you sleep with a man who also slept with mom and grandma Catherine? You slept with dad? Dad slept with grandma Catherine? Ew! No. Oh. All right. Well, this shares another thing with Last Picture Show. (laughs) Terrible sequels. Terrible sequels. Man, they both are cut almost from the exact same mold. Uh, Like, they they literally feel like the same trailer was cut for their sequels. But, so what are we supposed to believe? So Kevin Costner is Benjamin Braddock, and then Shirley MacLaine is... Is Mrs. Robinson. Okay, wait, wait. Okay, yes. This is what happens in this film. Okay. So... Jennifer Aniston realizes that her grandmother is Mrs. Robinson, played by Shirley MacLaine. Her mother, who would be the Elaine, has died. And so now she's back to go to this wedding that's like Mina Suvari's wedding. And she realizes that Mina Suvari's dad is Benjamin Braddock. Okay. And so Benjamin Braddock is still kind of wanting to fuck Shirley MacLaine. And then Jennifer Aniston also... Kind of fucks Benjamin Braddock. He does the whole fucking yuck, trinity yuck. of generations. But I will say this. If it was Dustin Hoffman, I would buy it even less. It's Kevin Costner. <laughs> I buy it a little bit more. There is some. He's sexier. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. All right, Amy. It brings us to the question. 
about the placement on the AFI list. Um, The Graduate was ranked number seven on the first list, and now it's at 17 on the updated 2007 list. It's dropping. It's dropping. What do you think? 17, seven? Should it be lower? (sighs) I think it should be a little lower. For a film that I enjoy and loathe in equal numbers, put it lower. It's it's above All About Eve. Do I want it to be all about, above All About Eve? No, I don't. Well, you know, I also look at this film and I kind of have it higher in my personal list because I think it's doing a couple things that we don't see often on the AFI list, which is from a cinematic perspective, it is absolutely beautiful. Um, even th- the framing. We didn't even talk that much about how, like, yes. as a couple, when they're in scenes, Mr. Or Mrs. or Mrs. Robinson and Benjamin, he's always putting them apart. One's in the front, one's in the back, one's out of focus, one's head is cut off. Like he's brilliant at the camera. I I, I think it's really special. Um, I also feel like you know the comedy and the drama and the performances are all kind of working together in this really wonderful way. It reminds me of what I really love about Capra films. And it feels like a contemporary of a Capra film. And it feels like it even has a little bit of the elements of a Preston Sturges film. But I also think it has a little bit more weight than a Preston Sturges film. I think a Preston Sturges heroine would have no time for Benjamin Braddock. No, 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 no. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely not. And um, But I do think for the fact that it is one of the lone comedies on the list, this watching of it really resonated with me. I really just got into it. But I feel like 17... It should be in the top 20. I think it should be in the top 20. I I felt very strongly watching it. And maybe as we go through the list, I'll feel differently. But it was something that I really connected to. And maybe it was because of Mike Nichols uh, and kind of our first foray into him on this list. I just really got caught up in him as a director. And and I just was uh, really engaged and went immediately after finishing the film to listening to him talk over the entire film with Steven Soderbergh. And just as enraptured as I was watching the film, listening to him talk about the film. So I, I think in the top 20 for sure. You're a Nichols head. I'm a Nichols head. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's roll that die and hopefully we'll get a strong uh, male lead. If we're really lucky, a strong blonde male lead right up your alley. Uh, let's see what we got. We have stops of stops rolling. 71. That is... Saving Private Ryan. Oh, damn, Whoa. Dice. We got a male lead for every type. I mean, really, I mean, it's you not want hard. You curly hair? You want a Matt Damon? What do you want? I was going to say, it's not hard to find a male lead on the AFI Top 100 list. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, we got a bunch of different guys in there. Got a little Vin D. Uh, Vin Diesel oh, yeah. in that film. Choose your own hunk. You know, throughout this episode, Amy, we talked a lot about different male leads and what they would bring to The Graduate. What if we had to take somebody from Saving Private Ryan and... Put them in The Graduate. Who do you think would be the best? I know who I'm going for right off the bat. Vin Diesel? No. Giovanni Ribisi. Ooh, he would have a nervous edge. He would have. He would at least have an intensity. I can see it. But I don't know if he has the sexuality that you're looking for. Well, if he's at least interesting. All right. All right. I like an interesting man. Well, what do you all think? Give us a call and tell us what actor, could be any actor at any part in Saving Private Ryan, um, to play the role of Benjamin Braddock. And let's say this. Let's open it up. If you want to say Tom Hanks, it would be like a younger Tom Hanks, right? Not, yeah. not You don't have to be the age that you would be 
in Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, you can make him. You can make him your Dreamcast age. You yes. can make him your dream hunk. Um, the phone number, of course, is 747-666-5824. 747-666, sign of the devil, 5824. <gasps> All right, guys. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. I want to say thanks again to our sponsor for this week's episode, Mubi. Mubi! The very brilliant curated online streaming movie service where every day they give you a new thing they think you like and then they take away something. So you have some time pressure. This is not the site if you're a person who just aimlessly scrolls forever and never watches anything. Movie is the site if you love movies and you want to watch something awesome. If you know that you need that little bit of a, a gun to your head to say, okay, now is the night. Let's do this. Movie is for that. It is for the people who really, really deeply care about movies. And right now they're doing a special thing in honor of the Berlin Alley. I love the Berlinelli. My my darling friend, my darling friend Justin Chang was just on the jury of the Berlinelli, and oh my god, he met Angela Merkel. It's ridiculous. Um, and some of the films that they are showing from the Berlinelli, this film, the festival, it's to me, I think, to me, it's like I think it's a little better than can. Ooh, those are fighting words. But I'm just gonna say that they have the 2017 movie Return to Montauk. It is beautiful. This movie, if you haven't seen it, um, this is a Stellan Skarsgård and Nina Haas film. It's a part of this like new German cinema movement that is happening right there. It's gorgeous. So Return to Montauk. This is the type of movie that maybe when you woke up this morning, you weren't thinking like, Return to Montauk. I'm going to watch that film tonight. But oh my God, after you watch it tonight, you're going to be like, Return to Montauk. Why has everybody not seen this movie? Thank you, Mubi, so much for bringing it to me right here on my couch. So if you want to try Mubi for free right now, you can do that. 30 days free. Mubi.com. M-U-B-I.com slash unspooled. That's Mubi.com slash unspooled. Get a whole month of amazing cinema for free right now. Go check it out. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, (laughs) Jazos. Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I have a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.